um, sometime last week. It was while we were on our men's retreat and, and uh, wanted to make sure he wasn't stealing any of my thunder with the Barnabas thing and stuff, which I, of course, said, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, repetition's always good. Say it more than once. It allows it to lock in for me and stuff. So I had no qualms about that. I said, absolutely, say whatever the Lord's leading you to say. What I didn't, though, anticipate is that he'd steal my thunder about a recap of all that's been going on in the last six weeks here at Faith. So there's a lot of things I don't have to say now, so I appreciate that, Elder Peter. But I'll, I'll forgive him. He's a little bit discombobulated. He is a grandfather again recently. And uh, so, you know, that scrambles the mind a little bit. I... I should take some of the applause, too, because I also am a grand... See, our kids <laughs> fell in love, and um, and uh, the product of that uh, love is this adorable little monkey named Rowan. So, anyway, so Madison and Will are, are figuring out parenting as we speak. So, um, anyway, thank you, Peter. All that's just to try to get a little attention on my family, so thank you. But the, I, I'm so out of sync. I'm, I'm, I'm rusty. I don't know what I'm doing here behind the pulpit. The whole month of August, I didn't have to study or prepare for a sermon. And so I don't know what I'm doing. I apologize. If you're a visitor here this morning, um, give me another chance after this week. So, um, but, uh, before we get into, uh, the text this morning, um, as Peter was highlighting all the things that have happened in the life of the church over the summer have been incredible leaps forward for our, uh, engagement as a body in Christ. It's been a leap forward in terms of our engagement in the city in which we're in. We're finding that our church is really taking to the vision of moving into the city and making Christ known in all areas. So we've had incredible participation. We've had incredible results, and uh, it's just been an, an amazing uh, summer so far. Um, but with all of those highs, of which there are many, there are a couple of things that I would deem as a low from time to time, and such is uh, the nature of having to say goodbye to uh, some people that you love. And so, um, actually, um, I left something at my seat that I'm going to go back and get. While I'm asking, that's why we have head headset mics. I feel like Phil Donahue. Anybody remember Phil Donahue? <laughs> I mean, caller, why? I mean, are we... Ernie, sorry, I'm dorking out. <laughs> Those of you younger than 40 are like, what a... Yeah, I deserve that. All right, I'm going to ask Nate and Libby Conley to please make their way up. Libby was just up here, but I'm giving her her exercise this morning. So please come on up. So this is a goodbye for now because you'll miss us so much you won't be able to be away for very long. But um, uh, Nate and Libby have been married for two and a half years. All right. Yep. Good. He followed up just after she started. Did you see that? You're learning. That all that <laughs> pre-marriage counseling is paying off. So um uh, but, uh, Libby, as you know, has been just a part of the fabric here since birth, almost. Um, and, uh, has been so instrumental to us. That was not an intended pun, but I wish I had because it's been perfect. She's on our worship team. But, but Libby, much like the Phillips family, just fills in a lot of gaps and is available in a lot of different ways and, uh, has bonded with my children and has become almost like a child of my own, except without me having to take any responsibility. So that's been great. 
um, but extremely proud and uh, just proud of Libby in so many ways. I'm trying to be brief so I don't get all verklempt and get my fishnicket stuck in my galipticazoic. It's happening. So anyway, um, and then Nate, we allowed to hitch with this lovely individual, and he's been doing a great job uh, along with that and uh, has participated in various aspects of our ministry, service team, and service team, I believe, and then most recently a part of our leadership for our men's ministry. So a lot of what we all experience at the retreat and everything is in thanks to Nate and his team and his participation there in representing that younger demographic. And uh, so we just can't be happier, prouder of you guys. We have a gift for um, for Libby because we love her more. And then there's, no, there's something in there for you too. But the, the thing in the bag is for, we didn't think it would look good on you. But um, anyway, so we have that. But I would like to just pray for you guys. Um, the, the plans are going overseas, Europe for a little while, and then, and then Colorado-ish or something somewhere. Yeah, okay. So let's be just praying for that, all right? Lord, I want to thank you, God, for this couple. I want to thank you, Lord, for this family. I thank you, Lord, that um, you are leading them, that you have control of their hearts, that they continue to yield themselves to you and grant them faith. And I just pray, God, that you continue to guide each and every step of theirs. Uh, Protect them, Lord, out in this world of arrows and attacks who... um, Uh, do not appreciate or value a biblical marriage. And so I pray, Lord, that their bond would only grow stronger, that their light would only shine brighter. And I thank you, Lord, for, um, again, just their hearts on fire for you. I pray that it would never die out. And we just thank you, Lord, so much for giving them to us as a gift and a blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. That was a hug. You got to match that. Thank Love you. you guys. All right. Now I get to talk. Well, as uh, as as Peter uh, had mentioned earlier, you know, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and Acts is the story of the birth and the growth, or the unfolding of the church, and seeing, much like our kids. Phillips, just in case you're not crying already, Mike, uh, I just thought I'd add to that. But it's like seeing our kids move on and develop. God is is sharing with us through Dr. Luke the unfolding or the journey of a growing, burgeoning church. We've seen it walk through baby stages and kind of stumble along like a toddler. And that's still happening even as we come to chapter 10 here and we'll dabble into chapter 11 but what we're seeing is this birth and this formation of the church following on the heels of Jesus' commission, what we refer to in the scriptures as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A little bit later on, he would continue that thought in Acts 1.8. And tell those that were following and those that had seen his resurrection now and seen him and, and were charged with the fact that he was right. He's alive. It's, it's all there. He would strengthen that commission by saying you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. It's going to go out until the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what we're witnessing when we're walking through the book of Acts. That that dissemination of the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel is moving beyond the borders of comfort. 
beyond the borders of familiarity. And for some strange reason, if you're not scratching your head about this more often, you should, is that God has chosen to advance his salvation message. He's chosen to advance his goodness and his kindness to broken sinners through human instruments. And he's entrusted us to carry the message of his love and to um, express his glory. But as human instruments, we are constantly in need of fine tuning, sometimes drastic tuning, almost like the strings had never been touched before. But then eventually, as he's had us growing and walking with him, he's always tweaking and tuning, giving us that fine adjustment so that we start playing music that sounds more like his heart and his will. So Peter, in our text, is an instrument of tuning, constant tuning. But we're seeing Peter now in the stage of needing fine-tuning. Peter, when he was walking with Jesus, was the type of instrument they were like, has anybody ever thought to string this guy? You know, is he, is, is he even capable of playing music? I mean, he seems to be totally out of tune. Now, he's at the place after Jesus has forgiven him. Remember after the resurrection, Jesus went and sought Peter individually? Said, tell the disciples and Peter that I'm back. And Peter knew that, that that meant his sins had been forgiven, that his his mission still counted, that he was still a part of the team, that Jesus was his savior. So now Peter needs fine-tuning. And we're going to watch some of that play out as we cover this uh, section. We are talking about uh, the interaction between Peter and a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is the first Gentile on record to receive Christ as Savior, thus signaling a major, major shift in the spread of the gospel as this thing is going out beyond the normal borders. What we saw uh, last time we were in this uh, narrative is that God prepares both the messenger, the one who is going and telling, and also the receiver, the one who's hearing. He prepares him with his, for his purpose, according to his purpose, and in his timing. And we can trust this. A lot of times we are tasked with or we're burdened with how to share our faith, how to have a conversation with somebody, how to answer a question. And we have to sometimes trust greater that God has been paving a road that we're just simply called to walk down. And this is what Peter and Cornelius are demonstrating for us. We saw from Peter that God stretches our comfort zone. It's not that it's easy. Going down this road isn't an easy thing to do. You don't know what's waiting for you on the other end. You don't know all the stops along the way, but you're going to go down this journey in faith. And so he stretches our comfort zone. And while he's doing that, he shrinks our self-reliance. We learn at every stop that we're not capable of continuing this journey. We're starting to see ourselves, that is in our flesh, that we aren't good enough to do the thing that God's called us in our own strength and power. So what we saw happening in chapter 10 was that Peter was being uh, going through a progression. He was being moved further out of the borders of which he was comfortable. The Lord brought him to Lydda, did some things there. Then he brought him to Joppa and then did some things there. Each stage of the, of the way was getting further and further and further from the comforts of home. From the things that he could he could uh, uh, recognize, the little shops on the corner that he would frequent, or the the sounds of the smells of the city, and any of those things, now he was being brought into territory he wasn't as familiar with. And what God does with us is takes us incrementally along the way. 
I believe those who would say that they have been called to foreign lands and places that are far away and out of would, would be able to point back and see the progression that God was doing to work on them to get them ready for such a thing. We should expect the same in our life. It was what is God preparing us to, to be and to do incrementally? And this, of course, lands Peter in Caesarea, where our story will uh, pick up here in just a moment. But not just a progression of distance, but in review here, we're also seeing that there was a progression of miracles. And this is a little uh, counterintuitive to what we would think as far as a progression. Progression gets bigger and better, and we think that those are the things that we can see and touch. He, he first encounters Aeneas, who is paralyzed, needs healing. Peter says, okay, you're healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. Take your bed. So he does. Big giant miracle. We talked about how it mirrored a lot of what Jesus said and did when he did the same. Tabitha, who was also called Dorcas, we know was dead, needed to be resuscitated. And, and so he, he spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit on, in the name of Jesus, and she came back. So how does it get any bigger than that? Well, physical death, we know, is not our worst problem. Our worst problem, our greatest ailment, is a spiritual death. That is our separation from the goodness, the holiness, the perfection of God. So this is the bigger miracle to come, if you will, in that Peter and Cornelius are going to have a conversation in which Cornelius is going to be able to get his biggest ailment healed. That is his spiritual condition. So there's a progression here of miracles. So as we talk about this, now that we're done a little bit of review, what we're going to talk about here is that the reminder that we have and God's people needed at the time, that his plan was always to expand this thing. It was never going to be an us for and no more. He had said through his prophet Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, Hebrew people, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He didn't say, I'm going to make you impressive to other nations so that they can be in awe of you. There was some of that. He, he did all those distinctive things with the people so that they would look and say, they've got a God who cares about them. He's protecting them from this. He's causing them to be different this way. He said, you've been set apart for my unique purposes. But it wasn't just so that they would go, ooh, ah, oh, I wish we had a God like that. Well, shucks, we were born Gentiles. What do you do? That wasn't the end result. It was that my salvation, God says, may reach to the end of the earth. And, and, and the Israelites often forgot that all of their special uniqueness and their, and their protection was to reach those who didn't have it, even those that were the Gentiles. So as we come to this story, we're going to see little bits and pieces of things that I think we can relate to because the problem isn't over. The, the, the human um, desire to keep what we have and to be exclusive in something and be uncomfortable to share it in places or territories or with people that we don't relate to or can't appreciate is still very much alive and well. As human instruments, many years of prejudice as well with the Jewish people, begin to build through laws and customs and every human being's bent towards dominating other people. You might say, that's a pretty strong word. 
But even in our little conversations and even in our minor skirmishes and even in our big ones, there is something within the heart of man that wants to oppress for our own advantage. That's where, uh, that's where sin takes its root. It takes a miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit to break down the barriers that we often forge or the ones that we've become entrenched in. Only the Holy Spirit can really break through. We've seen a world and a culture try to come up with lots of solutions, a lot of ideas, a lot of movements and things, only to see them fizzle and flame out. Because why? People usually take advantage of those movements and those ideas for themselves. That's because they still have a sin problem. So our call this morning as we come to the church, uh, come to the text as a church is that as we grow in the proclamation and the application of the gospel, that is, as we become more compatible with what the gospel truly is and what it's intended for, we'll reach those even that we are different from. So let's talk about this compatibility problem that we have when we're not lined up with the gospel. The first is that the gospel is incompatible with our own ego. I believe this is probably a bit of a statement here, but this is the greatest hindrance to the spread of God's glory. That being the pride of mankind. That we can blame the devil, we can blame the world that oppresses us, and those are true factors. The scripture says they are the enemy of God, but still they use the pride that each and every one of us have, and they fan a little bit of a flame, and all of a sudden we start doing their work for them. We saw that it got Lucifer in trouble, we see that it gets Adam and Eve in trouble, and then everybody ever since. I deserve it, why can't I? I should be able to fill in the blank. This is what we see playing out. Let's go to Acts 10. We're going to pick up in the second part of verse 23. After these miracles had taken place and there's um, a, a sending for that Cornelius is sending for Peter as a soldier and a leader. The Lord has spoken to him by an angel and said, you need to call for Peter, have him come for you. So Peter hears that calling. God has been speaking to him uniquely. We'll get into some of this here in a moment. So the next day, Peter rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. This is an incredible setup. If you see all this coming, Cornelius has been moved by circumstances that are clearly of God. He is convinced God is in the mix here. He, and he's hearing that Peter, the great miracle worker, who's fresh off of these incredible successes, is nearby-ish. So he sends for him. And as soon as Peter walks through the door, Cornelius is like, this is the culmination of all that God has been doing and leading. And we've been seeing him work miraculously. And he just falls and starts basically just kissing the floor. Peter, you're here. But what we see going on between these two gentlemen is a is a is an interaction of humility that we really need to take some notes from. 
Because Cornelius is offering this humble gen, uh, genuflection as a leader of men. He is a powerful individual. He's got people looking at him that, that he's got to command the next day. And they're going to have some thoughts about him just laying himself down before Peter. Does Cornelius strike you as somebody who's really concerned about his reputation in this moment? He has seen that God is doing something so miraculous and that all of his devotion and dedication that, that God has said, I've noticed that he's, he's pursuing the Lord. He is seeing that all of this, all of my questions are about to be answered. My life is about to change. His, his status, his position, his power become meaningless in the moment. Instead, he worships, which literally means to kiss toward somebody. He's offering this to Peter. Peter, several years ago or whatever, was he was kind of walking with Jesus and saying, hey, isn't this cool? People are starting to notice us. They're accepting us in places. Can't we take some advantage of this and everything? As all the disciples were doing when they were trying to figure it out, that Peter would have been like, hey, finally, this is paying off. They're recognizing, and they just saw my resume. I just did some pretty cool things and stuff. But Peter, as we said, has encountered Jesus differently. So much of what made Peter Peter before has now been stripped away. Not all of it. He's not perfect. He's not a saint, and he's going to point this out here in a second. But he's changed. He's transformed. He counters this humility with humility of his own in verse 26. But Peter lifted him up. You almost picture him kind of like, dude, get off the floor. Stand up. I too am a man. So he meets Cornelius' humble genuflection with his own humble deflection because he's been reduced by the forgiveness of God that he knows he doesn't deserve. But it's not all gone, as we said. There's a part in this coming up text that if we're looking for it, we'll see that Peter still has traces of his own humanity, as we all do. Can I get an amen? Okay, you're all saints, perfect, and you're just, all right. I understand. I'm by myself here. <laughs> Let's go into verse 27. As he talked with Cornelius, he went in and found many persons gathered. Literally, picture the, the movie directed in your mind. He walks through the door and there's all these eyeballs probably packed into a small place looking right at him. And he said to them, and I like to imagine he's stammering a, a little bit here. He's like, um, you, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of any other nation. Right. But as he's soaking it in and he's acclimating himself to the situation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This was a real lesson that Peter had gotten through a vision that we'll revisit here in a moment. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. The Holy Spirit had to tell him, go and make no distinction. That was part of the vision. So now I'm just asking you why you sent for me. Here's what I want us to think about just for a second here as a drive-by. You and I need to be patient with one another's growth while they work it out. Peter had just done some amazing things. He had seen the power of God work. He's convinced God could work. But in this cultural context, he still was stumbling a little bit, having to say it out loud, wrap his head around what God was really doing, because this is really uh, monumental, 
that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles and he's going, uh, my, by my people's law, it's unclean for me to be here. I just want to be on record for saying that this is a great risk. And I'm probably having funerals uh, offered for me and my family now that I'm here with you guys. I will be rejected by my people. That kind of thing is like pouring out of him as he's assessing the situation. So there are plenty of people that we work with, that we minister with, that are doing their own processing and trying to acclimate to a situation that they're convinced God's real and he's working. We just haven't seen him do it in this particular area area yet. So I'm going to need some time. I'm going to need to have my faith built. I'm going to need to wrap my head around this a little bit. It's important, I think, for us to remember that because sometimes we see people doing so many things so well. And then we see some humanity come from them or a little bit of a flaw. And we want to say, hey, I thought you were above this. I thought you were better than that. We have to think sometimes it's in context. Sometimes it's areas that God hasn't quite perfected or rounded off yet. All right, done with my drive-by. So there was a display of learned humility that both of these men are giving us. But there was a display that Peter's about to give us of victorious glory. So Cornelius then goes on to explain, well, Peter, the reason why you're here is because I too received a vision. It was, uh, you know, I was given a message from an angel. You need to go and send for Peter. And he sums up the whole thing for him. Verse 33, so I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Pretty cool opportunity. It's an amazing thing. He's rolling out the red carpet. He's already fallen on the floor in front of him. And he says, by the way, all these eyeballs and ears that are right before you, we're just ready for what you have for us. So talk. Peter's like, can I get a drink first or can I sit down or? It's all of this is happening at once. So I'd love to ask you the question because I've asked myself this question. How would you respond to such a wide open audience? You, you might say, well, Brent, I know how you would. You have us every week. And yeah, for the most part, I walk in every Sunday anticipating that m- the majority of the people in this room are here because they're saying, I wonder what God has for me today. And let's hope Brent did his homework and he can actually deliver it to us. I'm ready to do what the Lord spells out for me. I'm ready to do so. In that sense, I can understand what Peter is saying. But I have a week to get ready for this. He had moments, it seems. How would you handle that? A lot of our teaching and training in a church context, we've been doing some of it last spring with Travis Pelletier in our discipleship growth track. That's the DGT thing that Pastor Tom didn't want to explain to you. Just busting. He's the only, he's kept this place from burning to the ground in the last several weeks. I shouldn't be picking on him. <clears throat> and, and also the, one of the chief orchestrators of our whole successful baptism service. So anyway, have I made up for my little dig there? Yep. Um, but in our discipleship growth track, we had Travis Pelletier come and he really helped us understand how to get in a conversation with people who are maybe not ready for it or don't agree with us. Maybe they're apt to say, look, I want to have a debate with you because I don't believe God's real and everything. And so we were prepared to have conversations with people who are either antagonistic or careless about the faith that we want to proclaim. Do we ever stop sometimes and think, what would I do if somebody was ready if, if it was rolled out for me and they were just like, hey, I've been hearing a lot about Jesus and I want to follow, what do I do? If you're like me, that's such a, it catches you off guard. You start 
mumbling things that you eventually kind of start landing the plane. For me, it would be like, well, because I mean, church on on Sunday, and then we we then bread, and then you know that thing with the kids and all that, you know. And it's like, oh my goodness, somebody actually wants to hear the truth of who Jesus is because they've been led to this point, and now we're a captive audience. What would you do? We can learn from Peter. Immediately, he points up and away from himself. Because I'm so often fixated on me, I would have a tendency to talk about the things that have impacted me. Well, I can only speak for myself, and this is what I've found, or I would talk about the goodness of my church. You should come check it out, that sort of thing. But Peter says, I'm not going to waste time. I've got to get them thinking about Jesus. They, they've they've got to hear about him. So he opened his mouth and he said, truly understand that God shows no partiality. Again, he's going, this is starting to click with me that you're no different than me. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news uh, of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened. Isn't this amazing? He's saying, you know the story already, but I'm going to say it again. Throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are his witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death. By hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is an incredible sermon. Hits right to the point. Nothing really more needs to be said, especially for those who are ready to receive. But I would contend too that even if they were not so ready, these are important things for them to hear. Again, we take a little bit of a side note here. I just want to say, but this one's critical. Have you noticed here that in our last passage, I know it's been some weeks, but the scripture said that Cornelius was devout. He was looking for this. He was offering his alms and his sacrifices to the Hebrew God. He was a Gentile who, who wanted that, that, that the following of that God, and he wanted to be a part of that life. He was in, so to speak, in terms of his intention. Isn't it interesting that God still needed to send the gospel message to him? That, that if, if he was just simply saved, if you will, by his religious devotion, then he'd have been all set. We would have heard about it and said, by the way, the, the Jesus thing was moving. We even had some devout people over here that were doing their own thing and that sort of thing. No, he hadn't yet accepted Christ as his savior. He had not bowed a knee to the lordship of Jesus of which he would humble himself. Yes, we could say he was primed and ready in so many ways. But the message still needed to get to his ears so he could respond to it. So what does Peter do? He simply tells the story. Think about this, this, this progression. He talks about what Jesus did, the reason for his works. He 
talks about the fact that he did it sinlessly because you and I can't. He mentions that he was cursed for you and I. That little phrase that he was hung on a tree was a signal to everybody that he died the worst kind of death because if you're hanging on a tree, then that meant you were clearly cursed by God. He, he, he died a physical death. He was actually buried and he was resurrected. He was seen by those of his followers, too many to have illust- uh, uh, orchestrated a hoax. And he ascended to the right hand of his father, which makes him Lord of all. All of those elements, though it seems natural to us to think about, those are the things that if you and I are saying, if somebody ever put me on the spot and said, I want to hear more about Jesus, what do you have to tell me? You can think about it and say, well, I know why he lived. I know who he lived for, why I needed it. I know why he died, and I know it didn't end in the grave. So sometimes we spend so much time talking about our own experiences, we forget to talk about the glory of Jesus and all that he accomplished on our behalf. And I love how Peter is just willing to tell the story over and over and over again. As I was thinking about this week, it reminded me of a hymn we used to sing growing up all the time, which simply says, I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, which seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Don't you sometimes hear phrases and the things that Peter is saying? And even though you've been walking in the gospel, maybe you've known the Lord for a long time, just hearing that refreshes your soul, hearing it over and over again. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. These men are, de- are demonstrating for us that the gospel is incompatible with our ego so that it can pave the way for holding high the work and the name and the glory of Christ. Secondly, the gospel is incompatible with our prejudice. We've been giving some of the undercurrent of this now as we've been talking about this story in this passage, but the incredibly um, uh, monumental shift that's happening here is that the gospel is now being made available to the Gentiles, to the non-Jew. So in, in uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 11, <clears throat> I'll get there, in verse 1, The scripture says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's a group of people somehow saw themselves approved to be the police of those who were circumcised versus those who weren't. Gosh, all kinds of jokes just came to my mind. He's still human. Uh, Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, exclamation point. You, you brought our gospel message. You brought our salvation to the Gentiles. They're struggling here. Some in this party, this circumcision party would go on to wreak some havoc with the New Testament church. Paul would have to address them in certain ways, like in the letter to the Galatian Christians and stuff. So some of them stayed hung up on it, but others probably were going through what we would normally go through, going, hey, you're getting a little too far ahead of us. This is blowing our mind. We weren't ready to hear that this wasn't just for us. 
We were wrapping our heads around the fact that the Messiah had truly come. We had stepped out in faith to believe that he was really who he said he was. We believe he's resurrected, but we're not ready to share it yet. They were hanging on to their prejudices, which were many, incredibly deep between the two people groups, rather than seeing what God might be up to. Uh, Kent Hughes tells the story of Gandhi, who we all know is sort of like the, the name synonymous with like, you know, peace and love and tranquility and thinking and all that sort of stuff. And apparently in his autobiography, when he was a student, he was deeply touched by reading the gospels and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. If you're familiar with that, it means the rich are rich and the poor are so poor and they're cursed and we just don't deal with them. They're on their own, that kind of thing. There isn't this thing in the in the Hindu faith, and I'm not an expert on this, so please forgive me if you've studied this, but there isn't this aspect of compassion that says, hey, they're downtrodden, they're down and out, let's help them and lift them up. It's like, oh, that's on them. And so Gandhi was looking for an answer to this, and he was finding it in Christ. One Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for uh, enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go elsewhere to worship with his own people. He left and never came back. He's quoted here as saying, if Christians have caste differences also... I might as well remain a Hindu. Now, I, I know that sometimes the headlines are worse than the reality. I know that as we um, hear stories like that, we can't imagine anybody we know actually treating somebody like that. I can't imagine our, our uh, people at the door and our greeting team and everything seeing somebody different and kind of giving them that cold shoulder like you're not welcome here or something like that. I can't imagine that. So the story is extreme and it involves Gandhi, which is even more extreme. But really the underpinnings of it are quite familiar. This is who we are in our flesh. We see the difference. We see the the somebody who's not like us or who isn't living like us or any of those kinds of things, and instantly a wall goes up. We have to recognize that this is part of our sinful nature, that we desire safety and distance. We are not prone to availability. We are not prone to compassion in our own strength. And this usher, you know, is, is probably one of the worst representations of something that happens in us daily all too subtly. When it comes to this idea of the racial divide between uh, people, and we know that we're talking these days about more than racism and things. I'll say more about that in a second. But what the Jews were dealing with here was a, a, a racist hatred of the Gentiles, and I'm sure it went back and forth. We're uh, aware of the Jewish position on these things, and we have their quotes and their customs and stuff because we represent the side that is following the Lord who says you can't. Live like that. That's not who I am, nor can you be. The Jew was taught to walk with his robe bunched up in order to prevent even touching a Gentile. If he touched a Gentile, guess what happened to those robes? He had to burn them and get rid of all traces of them. There was an animosity and a division there that was freaking these people out that you're saying this gospel message means we have to get along with them? The gospel heals this 
racial divide by making us all needy before Jesus Christ. The playing field is level because when all people are sinful, when all people cannot save themselves, when all people need God's forgiveness, then we're in the same boat. We illustrated this a year or so ago with our difference between the guy driving a smart car and the guy driving mud tires. Does anybody remember that illustration? When we're all in the same vehicle, we all need a savior. We need someone to drive us to where we need to get. Personal prejudice and fear keeps us from helping everyone find Christ. Now, our culture is making your ears hear something that I'm not saying, perhaps. Perhaps. You might be hearing me say that any differences that people have are just fine with God and we just need to open the tent up, let them all in, and that's just the all hunky-dory. That anybody has something they're doing that's different from what you're comfortable with or what you think to be right, you just have to accept them. But that's what the culture has demanded of us. That is not what God's demanded us. It's not what the story of Peter and Cornelius is illustrating to us. What did God say to Peter Earlier in the story, he said when Peter was seeing a vision, the sheet was coming down and it was about eating foods that were um, told, the Jews were told, you cannot eat these things. It was creatures and critters and all that sort of stuff. And they were removed from participating in those things. God now sends in a dream to Peter. He sends this like picnic blanket coming down with all of these critters and creatures on it. And he says to Peter, rise and eat. Peter's first response is, no, 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 I don't do that. I'm a good Jew. You cannot make me do that. God then proclaims, he says, I know you think that. I know there's plenty of things about that that I have said. Now is a new era. We are doing something new. So don't call common or unclean what I've called acceptable to you. God has stated it's time to see this as okay for you. He stated it clearly. What culture would want us to think is that God changed his mind, that he caught up with the times. You can't keep doing the Jewish thing anymore. It doesn't really fit in society. Don't you know it's a Gentile world? You've got to catch up with the times. That's not what's going on. God didn't change his mind. He didn't change his plan. He didn't say, well, I should really do something about this. He knew all along that that division, that separation of identifying them as his holy set-apart people would someday change as Christ was on the scene and would welcome in the Gentile to salvation under his name. Now it was time by God's proclamation to not do, have to do those things in order to please God, in order to be, quote unquote, a good Jew. Culture would want us to think that anything they want to do or justify is because it's part of Old Testament archaic thinking. Jesus came and he's updated all that sort of stuff and it's a new blanket that's come down for us. It's not the truth. You know where I'm going with this probably and dancing through the lines and stuff, but in terms of the big battle of our day, which all comes down to uh, sexual politics and gender identity and all these sorts of things, that there is still proclamation that God reserves for himself to call good and clean what is good and clean and to call not good or not clean what he wants to call unclean. He hasn't changed his opinion on those things, but we have to be able to think a little bit deeper. There is a part of us that if we can't relate to people or know where they're coming from or we we don't appreciate or like or we're actually really revolted by certain things that people are, we shut down. We're now unapproachable. We're incompassionate sometimes. This is the part of the story that God is challenging us in. Not in saying, well, hey, no big deal. 
Nothing's unclean anymore. But how do we navigate this difficulty as we run into these things? So what does Peter do? He continues to put on display a godly perspective. I, I believe that there's a, 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 an amount of people that are challenging him, saying, wait, you took the message to the uncircumcised? What were you doing? I think some of them were just in ignorance who would have been ready to be shown a different way. We're going to see this proven here in a second. So how does Peter respond? Well, rather than saying, hey, I can do what I want. I just raised a girl from the dead. Who are you to question me? Any of that? No, he's very compassionate to what they're struggling with because he himself is still in real time letting this unfold. So he shares with them. We won't read all the text. We don't have the time this morning, but he shares with them three lines of evidence that what he has done, what he has witnessed is something of the Lord and they need to accept it as well. He tells them that this is a vision from God. He repeats the story about the great sheet, the big picnic blanket coming down and all the things he said that he was told. And Peter is saying to them, look, this stuff disgusts me too. I'm not some rebel who was just looking for justification. So I said, well, I got a vision from God. And he, and he, and so that he can say, you just have to deal with it because I'm a man of God. And I really wanted to do this, start living like a Gentile anyway. Peter is saying, no, this isn't comfortable for me. I'm not ready to do this any more than you are. It's the spirit that is unfolding this for me. He's leading me into this, into more um, palatable places, pun intended. That there's a vision from God. The second um, evidence he gives is that it was a witness of the Holy Spirit. He tells them in verses 12 and 15, he says, um, uh, The Spirit said to me, go and make no distinction. Don't separate your audience. Don't go and say, I can't go see them because they're Gentiles. The spirit told me to go. And then guess what, guys? The spirit showed up when they received Christ because the text tells us that as Peter is preaching the truth, the responses, the the tongues of of fire that the Holy Spirit fell on them and they started speaking in in tongues just like the the Hebrews did when uh, on the day of Pentecost. He said the same thing that happened to us happened to them. And then the third evidence he gives is the witness of God's word. I I love how Peter is walking them through all of these factors because he could say, I'm the apostle. You just need to trust me and leave this alone. We we see leaders, especially those that have pulpits and know their Bibles and all this kind of stuff, get on such power trips. Like, you just take my word for it. I'm the man of God. You know? And and Peter says, no, no, I, I... you don't take my word for it as the Holy Spirit came. But then also I remembered what God had said in his word. Jesus said that we would, that John would baptize with water, but we would baptize with the spirit. And that's what's happening. He says to them in verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Again, I'm directing my own movie, so I picture it got paused and people are leaning. What are we going to do with this? Picture a whole room full of people. What do we think about this? Just like in movie, it just moves into this big dramatic happy ever after ending that we can all say, yay, they came to the right conclusion. They did the right thing because it says they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
We can confirm it based on your, your witness, Peter, that this is a movement of the Lord that he intended to save the Gentiles. And we're here for it. What are we saying in all of this? We're saying that the gospel must necessarily cross human barriers to be what it was meant to be, which is the salvation of the world. Everyone, everyone must still surrender their sin at the fruit of the cross. You and I becoming more engaged and ready to be engaged in this process does not mean that we get softer on sin. It doesn't mean, as everyone wants to accuse, that that this has to become some woke thing where everyone's just cool with whatever they do and stuff. There is very destructive, damaging things that are happening in our culture that we can't just idly sit back and let happen. But we still call everyone to surrender their sin at the foot of the cross. It's on us, though, that we must remove the barriers of our own pride and our own prejudice that may hinder this work. How has your own self-interest tempted you to steal the glory from God? Think to Peter saying, get up, I'm just a man. How quick do we do that? Would you or I immediately, instinctively refute the praise, dare I say, even the worship of other people? How quick would we be to dismiss that? Have you let your fears and your frustrations with our current culture snuff out the flame of compassion? that might patiently lead others to Christ. As we've been saying off and on, and as we'll be talking about in our members gathering here next week, our city is ready to hear a salvation message. And the Lord is calling us to wrap that message in compassion and healing. And it's on us to want to be part of the number who will be the ones delivering that message. All of this is part of our preparation, just like it was as the church was being birthed back in the time of the Acts account. A lot for us to take in, a lot for us to chew on, a lot for us to go home with. But understand that the Lord knows he's saved people in process. You're not going to walk out of here knowing exactly what you need, need to do with what you just heard. What we need to walk out of here doing is being willing to be led continually. Lord, show me more. Get me incrementally closer to the place of which I'm doing the thing you've called me to do. And that's his work come alive in our hearts as we're the church of Jesus Christ. Would you please stand? Let's pray together as we prepare to sing. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you, God, for the patience of your people. We went somewhat long, and I just thank you, God, for the gift of your word. It's such a privilege and a joy to open it up and to grow from it. And Lord, it challenges us in our day-to-day. It's not just an ancient writing. It's not just something of profound words of wisdom for a day gone by, Lord, that you make this word living and active in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would handle it carefully, that we would know it well. I pray, Lord, that we continue to surrender to it as you lead us. Thank you, God, for a congregation of brothers and sisters who look after one another, who support one another, who pray for one another. Lord, we're going to need it in these times and in these days. So help us, Lord, to focus our our affections on the prize, which is the pursuit of your glory. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.